You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thank you. Um, welcome everyone to the first seminar of this semester. Um, we have a very prestigious speaker here this evening, uh, Professor Mary E. Daly. So Mary is Professor Emeritus in Irish History from University College Dublin. Um, she'd be familiar to most of you. She was elected as the first woman president of the Royal Irish Academy in 2014, and in 2015, the NUI awarded her an honorary degree of Doctor of Literature, recognising her distinction as a leading Irish historian and a contribution to public life. She's also currently uh, one of the commissioners in the Commission of Investigation into Mother Baby Homes. Mary is best known for her pioneering social and economic histories, and she's the author of over 10 books that cover everything from the famine to emigration to urban history, commemoration, industrial development, and work. And this work covers both the 19th and the 20th centuries. And she's currently working on yet another book on contraception. Uh, she's been a driving force in modern Irish history since she entered the field and has opened up many new areas of historical research. And as a former PhD student of hers, it was her hunger and her curiosity for new research that was always very inspiring. As a social historian, me and many others are always very interested to see what is Mary Daly going to do next? And it's in that spirit of anticipation that I will hand you over now to Professor Mary Daly. Thank, thank you very much, Karen. Um, I look forward to the book, uh, which comes out shortly. But uh, Karen and myself actually shared an office briefly on stage, which, which was a very harmonious experience. <laughs> this is really work, I don't know whether it's in progress, work that I've been at on and off for a while. I, I'm looking at the fertility decline and family planning in Ireland. Uh, uh, and this paper is really, at some stage during it, during it, I started working out where does feminism fit into that story? And um, the problem, and this image, I think you all know, in fact, it's so uh, iconic, it was in the Irish Times last Saturday, it's a book. Uh, and it does seem to create an assumption that you get in a lot of you know, general accounts, that the women's movement was crucial in promoting access to family planning. And what I want to suggest here today is that the story is a bit more complex than just the contraceptive train. Um, the early, and a lot of my focus, incidentally, will be on the more, more conservative women's voices in the 1970s, in 1970s Ireland, which I think have been underappreciated in, in research and literature. The early drive for family planning was led by members of the medical profession who were primarily concerned about married women with large families, not a group that any yeah, family planning group anywhere has found it particularly difficult to get to kind of address. Private members' bills promoted by people like Mary Robinson, John Horgan, and Trevor West, or by Noel Brown and John O'Connell, made the case for reform in terms of the need to make independent Ireland a much more welcoming place for us to Protestants, ordinary citizens barely featured in those accounts, and it's well worth looking at it. The Cosgrave government decided to introduce legislation in 1974 in response to what, uh, what Una mentioned, the Supreme Court ruling in the E case, affirming the rights of married couples to contraception. And that ruling left a very great gray area about the legality of importing and distributing contraceptives. The government was also responding, and I think this is equally important, to the Sunningdale Agreement of December 1973, which was uh, just shortly, shortly, after, shortly before the Supreme Court judgment. 
And the detailed memo on the government bill in the Fleetwood Files actually looks at the proposed bill from the perspective of a parliament for a country, 25% of whose population were Protestant, as our population would be if Sunningdale and its implications are carried through. It shows you the way, you know, how people were thinking at the time. In the spring of 74, when the university senators tabled yet another private member's bill, Conor Cruz's O'Brien's second speech emphasised the implications of it for an all-Ireland entity and the consequences for Ulster unionism if the bill was not, uh, was, not, was not supported. And she says the same message in the summer of 74 on the government bill, despite the fact that it's after the collapse of power share the executive. Another major player in the debate, which is seriously underestimated, is the Irish Family Planning Rights Association, chaired by somebody I knew and admired very much, Brendan Walsh, UCD economist. It was the Irish Family Planning Rights Association, which was set up, by the way, by a British Airways pilot and his wife, eh, who initiated the McGee Challenge. They brought a whole cohort of people in, doctors, and eh, Lord Mary Robinson joins in as well. And they also explored the loopholes in the law, such as supplying condoms in return for donations. IFPRA based its case on human rights, the rights of religious minorities, the rights of individuals, doctor's right to treat a patient as he or she saw fit. Now women are active in all the above, but so were men, and none of these were explicitly feminist movements. Women's magazines were also very important in practical ways, providing advice and information both in print and confidentially, putting women in touch with sympathetic doctors and confessors, giving the addresses and times for the first family planning clinics, uh, you, you couldn't Google it in those days, and the women's page newspapers also came I would argue in their wake, I think the, the magazines were ahead. David Nolan, medical correspondent of the Irish Times, who was director of the Irish Family Planning Association, though I'm frankly not aware that that was ever explicitly declared in the newspaper at the time, provided significant coverage of the topic. So where is the women's movement? Linda Codenley's study of the Irish women's movement, which has stood the test of time remarkably well, makes the point that it didn't emerge in a vacuum. There was considerable continuity with organisations dating back to the 1920s, which came together with a new vigour in the 1960s and persuaded the government to support the Commission on the Status of Women. But the Commission, by the way, was primarily driven by economic agenda, which is why it was under the Minister of Finance. The contraceptive train of May 71 was organised by the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, a subconsciously feminist group that held its formal launch in not much more than a month before the contraceptive train, which was led by women journalists and left-wing women. The women's liberation movement was extraordinarily adept at using media, both in the newspaper columns and on television. It got two appearances within a short time of the Late Late Show, including the evening of the contraceptive train. By June 71, however, several founding members had resigned, the organisation had split, and what Linda Connolly describes as a plethora of women's lib groups formed in its place. The members disagreed on everything. Priorities, not least the wide range, not least because of the wide range of issues needing attention. Northern Ireland and housing action also came into the whole uh, mix at the time. Connolly notes that it had developed in an erratic, disorganised, and chaotic fashion and was short-lived. The members were very divided over the contraceptive train, as were a lot of people who regard themselves as feminists. A Mary Marr journalist had just given birth to her second daughter in, and remembers watching it all on television in Hollow Street, possibly with a sinking heart, a type of protest which she feared alienate the very women were hoping to attract. 
Connie quotes another, an unnamed member of the movement, left-wing activist who was very unhappy over the whole episode. And she also quotes critical comments by Louis Fennell and Davis Arnold, who would reflect a different position. Contraception did feature on the long list of recommendations in the report of the Commission on Status of Women, which appeared on the 28th of February 73, the date of the general election, which saw the return of the Fine Gael Labour government. Uh, the Commission recommended information expert advice on family planning should be available through medical and other appropriate channels to families throughout the country, and that advice should respect the moral and personal attitudes of each married couple. Medical requirements arising out of the married couple's decisions should be made available under the control and through channels determined by the Department of Health. That's that. Those recommendations ensured that contraception remained on the agenda of the Council of the Status of Women, the umbrella organisation of women's organisations, which formed in 1972. One of their goals was to press for the implementation of the recommendations of the Commission. But the recommendations of the Commission were an extraordinarily long list. You've got equal paid marriage bar, widows, deserted wives, single mothers, legal status, married women, welfare entitlements. And these are low-hanging fruit. They're much less controversial issues. There's a much better chance of being adopted by government and they've much greater support in the wider community. And they were really the priorities. And they... When the Finnegan Labour government announced its intention to draft legislation on contraception in the spring of 1974, there was no women's group campaigning effectively on the issue, and there was no feminist voice in the area. There were only four women TDs at the time, all got receipts as widows. When Emma Philbin Bowman interviewed single women who were attending the Sing Street Clinic of the Irish Family Planning Association in 1974, only 34% of those women broadly supported the aims of the women's movement. 6% believed the move, these are single women, 6% believed the women were too aggressive, that the movement was too aggressive. The remaining two thirds were either completely uninterested or unaware of being discriminated against, that's 24%, or they were happy to see equality end with equal pay, 34%. And the most supportive of feminist causes had no immediate plan to marry, if ever, but that's a tiny minority. The Council that started women tiptoes around contraception doesn't make any submission to government on the 74 bill or following the spectacular defeat of the second reading of the bill in the summer of 74. They eventually got around to holding a special meeting on family planning in the autumn of 75 where member organisations were asked for their views. The questions were very, very perfectly framed and it, it, it showed you what a genius, what a delicate issue it was. One outcome of the McGee case was growing markets for non-medical contraceptives that were being imported from Northern Ireland and sold around Dublin and through organisations such as FPS who just for a donation and supplied both mail order and walking clients. So the Council for the Status of Women framed the question in terms of regulation <coughs> rather than access, which was, which was also the approach of the Robinson Bill of 73-74. And the questions were, does your organisation think that legislation is necessary or desirable to control contraceptives? Not to access, but to control. And does your organisation think we should urge the government and the media to do so? 19 organisations said yes, two said no, one abstained, and six avoided the issue by not turning up the meeting at all. And the question was, what did the 19 in favour want? Adapt one you would expect to see on the kind of more liberal side of the argument, the Association for Research and Single Parents, 
had held two meetings on the topic and decided that contraceptives should only be available at health centres and family planning clinics. The Single Women's Association predictably wanted a severe clampdown but had no objections to methods approved by the Catholic Church. There was absolutely no consensus within the Council of Status Women, so the Council didn't issue any statement. The Intercommonly suggests that this provides an indication of the conscious sensitivity of the Council to the conservative values of Irish society, the need to be more cautious, to avoid demobilisation, also the ideological orientation of the majority of its constituent organisations and members. The groups that are actively expanding access to contraception and indeed information about abortion in these years are not hopelessly feminine. They are the students' unions, particularly Trinity and UCD. UCD famously installed a contraceptive machine around 1975, being one of the first in the country. And it's no coincidence that the Well Woman Clinic, which is the first feminist clinic in, in this field, founded in 1978, by Anne, was, was founded by Anne Connolly, who's former Trinity College Students' Union officer. But note, it's really 1978 when you get clear feminist. Uh, practical space and clinic in that space. Students' Union were also very active in establishing clinics in both Galway and Limerick. There were women involved in all these, no question, but it's not under feminist labor. That's the point I'm trying to make. There were feminist organizations which do engage with the issue uh, around 1975. Irish Women United are demanding free contraception for all, which wasn't exactly the most practical stance to make. Uh, 76 sees the launch of contraceptive action program and a stall in Dublin Dandelion Market. But these, frankly, are fringe activities who, as far as I can see, is practically impact should not be overstated. If you look at opinion polls, the evidence suggests that until the mid-70s and maybe even later, women lagged behind men in supporting access to contraception. In 1971, 29% of women and 35% of men would approve of contraceptives being sold in Ireland. The only cohort with a majority in favour were men aged 25 to 34. Among women of childbearing years, 55% opposed the sale of contraceptives, 41% were in favour. Another survey by Keith Hudson Davis in 73 showed that among those advocating change in the law, women were much more conservative than men, prescription only, marriage only. By 1974, it appears that attitudes are changing. 52% of adult women and 55% of adult men favoured contraceptives being sold in chemist shops. But the defeated government bill in 74 resulted in a fall in, in falling support. And a, a poll conducted on identical lines in October 75 showed 47% of men and women in favour, which is a drop. Though the gender gap has vanished, which is quite interesting. Um, in 1974, 51% of married women favoured changing the law. By 75, that's fallen back to 48. Older women really uh, moved away from the whole issue. Women of childbearing years did hold firm 68% of those aged 16 to 44 in favour of liberalisation. But a later survey by McGill in 77 reveals a very big gender gap. 51% of men in favour of a more liberal access, 44% of men. So age, residence, and social class trumps gender when it comes to attitudes towards contraception, and the opinion poll data do not show a steady momentum in favor of liberalization. I think it's important, if you're looking at the women's movement, to bring a few lessons from the Americans' women's movement. If you look at 
something. I, I, I mean, I've been thinking this out and I've actually written an early draft of it, and then I found a book by a woman called Marjorie Sprood, which looks at the women's movement in the United States. And she suggests that uh, there are two women's movements in the 1970s in the States. A women's rights movement that enjoyed tremendous success early in the decade, and a conservative women's movement that formed in opposition and grew stronger as the decade continued. Each played an essential role in the making of modern American political culture, and I think we need to look at something similar. It's not the same, but we need to begin to think in those terms in Ireland. The American story is one of a very public divide between the two. Nothing is quite as dramatic in Ireland, but in the 1970s, you had women both on the side of reform and on the conservative side when it comes to all kinds of issues, and I'm looking at the moment of contraception, which would widen it out. And I think we need to start examining both voices and try and give equal party of treatment and party of attention to both. And I think it's very important if you're trying to look at the slow pace of change in Ireland with regard to issues such as contraception or divorce, it's important to spot that the opposition to change in the 70s and 80s is a somewhat different opposition to the opposition that you would have gotten in the 60s or earlier. I look at the beginning at, so I want to look at some women's voices, and I want to begin with the largest women's organisation, which and the longest surviving, the ICA. It basically tried to find a big, big fence to sit on when it comes to contraception and other divisive issues. In 1971, the AGM refused to accept an emergency motion from the Kildare Federation, calling on the ICA to urge the government not to change the law on contraception. The ICA president rejected the motion, claiming that the ICA constitution specified it was non-sectarian, non-political, and couldn't discuss the topic or make any recommendation. She then urged members to give the topic deep, deep and careful thought, but presumably they weren't to talk about it to their fellow members. Her actions prompted several delegates to walk out, whether they were in favour of the motion or opposed, it's not clear. In his memoir, Frank Comey, who was involved in establishing FPS, that's the group that distributed condoms, recalled that, quote, he loved going around speaking mostly to ladies' clubs and other women's groups like local branches of the Irish Country Women's Association. He carried a bag of visual aids with him, including plastic, plastic model with multiple parts and various other accoutrements plus charts and diagrams, and he was usually accompanied by Pat O'Donovan of IPS, a housewife with a lovely cultured accent and a fine lady like way about her. You can actually in the ICA files see complaints about the fact that he is a, you know, speaking to guild meetings. It was very divisive within the organization. When the ICA guilds were circulated with a summary of the recommendations from the Commission on the Status of Women in 1974, and asked to determine whether they approved of them or not, Many of them reported that they decided not to discuss the family planning recommendation, or they reported that the issue was left to conscience or to individual couples. Answers the debate the fact that legislation would be required to enable couples to exercise their preferred options. One guilty cabin recorded that members felt it was up to each couple to satisfy their own conscience regarding this matter, and then added, we felt that a lengthy discussion would prove embarrassing to some. An unnamed guild replied, yes, provided no method is adopted to contravenes the law of God or runs contrary to nature. Therefore, would be a pull to legislation that would make abortion or contraception legal. In the Scarra County Court, ballot members gave them four options. Fourteen wanted no change. Two favoured making contraception available without restrictions. Nine available with restrictions. Three wanted them for financial and medical reasons only. Three to family planning clinics. One a doctor's prescription. Two to market. 
only. Uh, with the requirement to produce a marriage certificate, which is an idea that's run, running around a lot at that time. Another court note noted that members adopted a conservative stance and seemed content with the status quo. Several people expressed the decision against change. Those that favoured improved access, including family planning centres and major towns, were clear it should be confined to married couples. The IC position is consistent with opinion polls showing that farmers were the most conservative group. Nevertheless, Mayo Guilds wanted clinics in all large towns. Dublin Guilds are in the moderate space. Dollymount was opposed to selling contraceptives in shops, but otherwise supported change. Another guild uh, opted out by saying that it's in the hands of the government of the High Court and they wouldn't have any views on it. Uh, another expressed support, but then insisted, as Lawton did, that there should be a distinction between contraception and abortion. Two thirds of the Barry Valley Mullen Guild supported the Commission's recommendations, though mainly one third asked that their objection be recorded. No opinion or silence was the predominant ICA position. When the ICA conducted yet another survey on attitudes in the summer of 1978, this was requested by the Council on Status of Women, I'm pretty sure it's feeding into the hobby bill at the time. Uh, this took the form of a questionnaire inserted in the ICA magazine. It looks at first sight as if attitudes have become more, more liberal. 80% of respondents favoured some form of national family planning service. More than 25% favoured the national family planning service for all couples, regardless of market status. 80% of respondents under the age of 42 wanted more information on different forms of family planning. But the response rate was only 5% of members, about 1,100 people, which doesn't really give you anything approaching a representative sample. Silence was the predominant uh, response to it. And you need to be careful about the National Family Planning Service because many of the completed questionnaires wanted Billings Method supported as a National Family Planning Service. If the ICA tended to avoid taking a stance, other women were less bashful. In the years 68 to 71, the years of humanity and its immediate aftermath, uh, when Jack Lynch's government was looking at liberalising the law on contraception and then decided to wait the verdict of the courts, the voices raised against change were predominantly male and clerical. By 1974, however, when the coalition government declared an intention to introduce legislation, there was much more grassroots opposition, much more lay opposition, and much more female opposition, voice opposition. Another interesting change is the significant increase in letter writing campaigns to politicians, and you and I, nobody can add to my, what I'm going to say on that. The earliest masks kind of letter writing, uh, it, 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 you know, uh, is sending its submitting, submitting statements to politicians. And I discovered is in the early 60s, when Sean Lamas is inundated with, with circulars urging him to support the recommendation of the Commission on Albion de Goelga, the Language Revival Commission, you begin to get mass write, letter writing campaigns, a less mass uh, on Northern Ireland post 69 and their contraception beginning in the early 70s. And the number of women who are engaging in these political campaigns, I'm using political with a small p, is rising significantly. In 1974, I, you first encounter Alice Blair, a future Finnegan TD, who styled herself chairman of SOS, Save Our Society. <coughs> she informed the Taoiseach her organization was conducting a collaborative fact-finding canvas, but had yet, has yet only got results from Dublin. And she reported the average household with mixed age group. It showed 75% against the sale or general availability of contraceptives. 
And they raised foundation fine, but young married couples with one to three children and heavy mortgages, she said her kidney was defined at 50-50, which concluded that over 70% of the electorate was, was opposed to general sailor availability of contraceptives and were encouraged to subject the question to a referendum if necessary. She doesn't indicate as to how she compiled her information, but very possibly through pedigree branches. And Alice Glenn is published, who make, makes a dull career out of these, and she's quite successful one. 73 74 is a crucial period. The Irish Family League was founded in May 74, led by Mary Kennedy, a prolific letter writer to politicians and newspapers as a leading voice. By 1974, there came approximately a thousand members. They set out an apocalyptic vision for future Ireland. Contraception was made legal in 74, you would have abortion in 78, euthanasia in 1980, and the dystopian future of 1984. They followed this with a four-page stencil leaflet. One of the interesting things is that poor quality of most of the early publications, even from the, from the household staff and women, very primitive. They don't money. You can spot American stuff on either way. Uh, this one was entitled Our Way of Life is in Danger, which they sent to all ministers, TDs, and senators. They warned that the Supreme Court was in danger of exceeding its functions, an early pointer towards the Coalac campaign. Irish Family League combined opposition to contraception with sympathy for traditional republic, militant republicanism and opposition to the repeal of Article 44, the special place of the Roman Catholic Church from the Constitution. It went through the strong majority with no debate, and it, there was a backlash following it, quite clear. Uh, booklet is Contraception the Answer, published by Veritas, the published by Women of the Catholic Truth Society, the entire community and reform of contraception, asking, is it not monstrous, monstrous that there should be men and women who consider themselves patriots, yet have the impertinence to insist that Ireland can hope to enjoy unity, only if she prepared to renounce her treasured Christian heritage in favour of the decadent norms of her ancient enemy? <laughs> Lindy Kavanagh, a journalist with Women's Choice, uh, claimed that this brochure was written by the Irish Family League, though they were not mentioned on publication. Uh, Kavanagh report tried to write, wrote quite an interesting article on these various groups, and she reported that when these groups were given the opportunity of putting across their point of view, they seemed reluctant to do so. She described researching her story on these groups as almost like trying to write an article on the activities of the special branch. After going around in circles for days, you still found that you hadn't got very much further. They refused to give her an interview as they felt it would be unethical to have it appear in a magazine that had the claim to take a stance in favour of contraception. This hostility to the media does actually make it difficult to find material about these, these groups, and yet I think they're quite significant. By 74, the Irish Family League has prepared a dossier on all the Dublin clinics, a who's who of those working in the field which they circulated to all TVs and senators, plus a list of newspapers and magazines which they describe as giving undue publicity to illegal contraceptive services. Most of these organisations were completely suspicious of the media. The Irish Right to Life Society, whose postal address was the home of Mrs. Na Mrs. Na Mavis, I think it is, yeah, sorry, Mavis Canary, I'd say more about her later, told uh, the journalist that the group believed that the media were not honest. They prepared, preferred sorry, to carry on in their own quiet way. The fact that most women journalists were identified with the Irish Women's Liberation Movement and feminist causes fostered such suspicion. 
Mary Leyland provides a rigid portrait, however, of the court-based Monona Heron, which was led by Una Vikvahuna and Anya Iwerku, also established in 73, which came from members in different parts of Ireland and plans to become a national organisation. Their objective was to uphold the dignity and rights, moral and civil of Irish women. The combined opposition to any change in the laws on contraception, divorce and abortion, with opposition to married women working outside the home. Their other objectives included maintaining Article 44, which is the article related to women in the home, campaigning for a living wage for the head of each family to enable them to live as befits the dignity of man, ensuring that women were not forced by economic pressures to work outside the home, and opposition to the establishment of state-run nurseries. If there were state-run nurseries in Canada, I find no evidence of it, I must confess, and also state-supported family planning clinics. Uh, Manona Heron actually was run in Layla discovered by, by two very young women who had very young families. So uh, there is a version which suggests that these are all run by elderly single ladies. They weren't, and I think it's important to put that on record. Another aspect worth noting is the involvement of religious sisters. The late 60s sees a sharp decline in the number of women entering religious life and a significant number leaving convents, much larger numbers than men. Those who remain appear to become much more publicly involved with social and religious matters. Um, Dr. McQuaid at one stage tries to tamp down on some ultra-liberal uh, theology tapes that are circulating around Ireland to discover the involvement of social convents. No, 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 no male religious orders seem to fall from. Uh, in 1974, when government legislation contraception appeared imminent, uh, Liam Cosgrove begins to receive large numbers of letters from nuns, mostly from individuals, but a lot of group submissions. Some include religious objects such as scapulars, mathless medals, etc. But you didn't get nuns writing to politicians in this way eight, eight, 10, 20 years earlier. Uh, and a lot of these nuns are also active in supporting natural methods of family planning, especially buildings. And I want to move on to look at natural methods of family planning and the networks behind it now. One of the strangest features of family planning in Ireland is the total, almost total absence of information or access to natural methods, which Catholic groups actively promoted in other, in other countries. They only arrived in Ireland in the late 1960s. In fact, the pill probably predates. It was probably easier to in about 65 and would have been to get access to a, a clinic promoting natural family planning. Um, sorry, I've got this place. Parad a, a paradoxically, what it shows is the complacency of the Irish hierarchy. They were introduced earlier to provide an alternative to, to, to other forms of contraception. And what it shows is the complacency of the Irish hierarchy and the reliance on the state to keep contraception. They, they're not doing much themselves. Paradoxically, the 1970s marks the spread of mass information about natural family planning in Ireland, and most of the initiative for this rests with individuals and organisations that are fully compliant with Catholic teaching, but they're operating independently or as one remove of formal church networks. The Billings Method, which is named for the Australian urologist Dr. John Billings and his wife Evelyn promoted a method of determining ovulation <coughs> by changes by detecting changes in cervical mucus. Billings claimed his method was going back to nature, escaping the tyranny of the thermometer, which was used for other forms of natural family planning. It was ordinary women training other ordinary women to detect changes in their bodies, but did not require medical guidance. 
Billings, the whole kind of discourse behind Billings is very much in tune with second wave feminism. It dismisses professionals, especially male doctors. It promotes female networks, self awareness in the body, self screening, such as breast screening, which is coming in at this stage. And it's philosophically not dissimilar from the natural childbirth movement at the time. Evelyn Billings, who's a critical figure in the whole process, claimed there would be little need for family planning clinics in five years' time because this method would supplant barrier and chemical methods and because it's both woman to woman and not in a clinical setting. Cork appears to be the first place in Ireland to really adopt Billings, perhaps because Dr. Lucy had closed down the Catholic Marriage Advisory Council when one doctor spilled beans uh, and said that all the people who came there were looking for information on contraception. In 1972, a clinic opened in Cork, which was run by OBAS, which is the Open Ovulation Methods Advisory Service. Teaching and evangelization, and I do use the word deliberately, about Billings was led by women. Some were professional women, including nurses, midwives, but many were not. One of the driving forces was Sister Anne Healy, a nun and a nurse who had learned the technique in New Zealand. The Cork Clinic was largely organized by Jane Quinlan, wife of UC. Professor at NUI Centre, Patrick Quinlan. She published a guide, a few charts and colour stamps, which is widely described. She answered letters, did mail order, and all the rest of it. By 1974, it's also been taught by a lady doctor in Donegal, doctor in Wexford, and the Social Services Centre at Stanford Street Convent in Dublin. Our Lady Birds Hospital Drama is another centre where it's led by a sister who has learned on missions. And this spikes another aspect of the story that I don't think we've tried to explore, which is the impact on both conservative and liberal networks at the stage of returning migrants, immigrants, and the Irish overseas. The Phoenix movement attracted little attention to Catholic periodicals such as the Standard, and apparently little from the Catholic hierarchy, until one John Bonner gives its status, an arguably male professional legitimacy. Bonner an internationally recognised researcher who published some of the early scientific papers on the contraceptive pill, became professor of obstetrics and gynaecology in Trinity in 1975. In February 77, he became principal investigator on a World Health Organization study of the effectiveness of Billings method, with Ireland as one of the five area studies. Bonner estimated that 20,000 couples were using natural family planning, which if accurate was about, I'd say, half to two thirds of the numbers on the pill. Ireland was vital to the success of the Billings movement because the church-approved method had failed to attract support in Western Europe. WHO initially planned to include Italy in the study, but couldn't find sufficient couples willing to take part. And there were only 200, 200 couples in each country. It wasn't exactly a huge number. So Bonner, Bonner was asked to lead a trial in Dublin. The Catholic standard, which had ignored family planning in previous years led its first issue of 1977, page one of the story, UN Health's Natural Family Planning. 1977 would see a push in Ireland by church authorities to propagate the non-chemical or natural family planning methods approved by the church. The report reviews of one unnamed doctor professor who was undoubtedly Dr. John Bonner that the richer society becomes the more sophisticated, the higher the failure rate for the rhythm method. In rural and areas in more simple societies, the failure rate is much less. On another occasion, Dr. Bonner reflected that the development of the ovulation method seems to start further south in Cork, Wexford, and perhaps in less urbanised areas. In 1978, article in Hyberia by John Kennedy, entitled John Bonner's Billings Boom, 
claims that it was the smack of professional acceptability that persuaded the church to act the beliefs that it so forcefully. In other words, you know, until this Trinity professor came along, male, eh, they were pretty well ignoring it. And at this point, it spreads. He claims there's 101 centres in the Republic, 11 in Northern Ireland, and he claimed by 78, 40,000 women had been trained in the method. He offered two explanations for its success. <coughs> and the first one I think is very important. Women who didn't have access to a car could go to a local centre and learn it. And it attracted women who were abandoning the pill because of reports of health risks. I also think the fact that it's women to women that there's not a daunting male profession involved also, I think, encouraged some women to engage with it. Bonner used the health risks associated with the contraceptive pill to promote natural family planning and the need for women over 35 to find an alternative method. Bonner and Mavis Canary, who I mentioned earlier, she by this stage is head of Domus, the Dr. Benning Network, consciously deployed feminist discourse to promote the method. A woman to woman non professionals. Canary also noted the growing demand by women for natural childbirth. Phoebe's Hiberni article noted that Phillips is the prime contraceptive method in Ireland today and then posed the vital question does it work? He noted that Dr. Bonner sounded considerably less sure of that today than he did a year earlier. The Irish results have not been so marvellous. The WHO study did indeed show an inverse correlation between <coughs> success and female education. The Philippines, where many participants were illiterate, recorded the highest success rate, Ireland and New Zealand the lowest. John Bonner believed, and I discussed this with him, that it was most successful among farmers' wives and farmers' daughters, and he told me that Adelaide nurses who were members who were Protestant were among the most successful users. Uh, he also claimed that women who were university graduates were useless. Uh, uh, at it. Uh, but the trial showed that there was no great advantage between Billings and the Kowalter method. Despite Dr. Bonner's prominence, most activists were very suspicious of doctors. It was a wonderful spat in the Journal of the Irish Medical Association between Conor Carr, who was consulted before Jankala, and various kind of you know, advocates, where he tried to get some of his patients to use it, unfortunately the results were dire, and they blamed it all the fact that he was a doctor, and he made a doctor, and he should have nothing, he nothing about it at all. Nevertheless, despite this kind of anti-professionalism attitude, when the Irish Fittings Groups united in 1978 to form NAOMI, and it's the national organisation, they're still in existence as far as I know, but I can't get any information from them, um, Dr. Arthur Barry, an elderly consultant at Hollis Street, was appointed president, though Mrs. Canary was effectively the leader and Ireland's representative at international meetings. There is the significance of Billings for Ireland is multiple in various ways. It introduces countless women, especially in rural Ireland and small towns, to the idea that they can restrict their fertility. Uh, the studies done by the Princeton Fertility Study, particularly Anthony Cole and various others, shows that as the first that this is the first step towards effective family planning, to think that it's within your kind of comprehension. The second significance was to create a network throughout Ireland of women who created a conservative attitude, who shared a conservative attitude to reproductive issues. So I'm going to kind of conclude at this point. Uh, and I want to emphasize that I'm still working on it to a lot of this. First of all, female activism of the 1970s has several strands. Radical, moderately reformist and conservative, and they all have to be considered. 
I'm worried if I haven't said much about the morality today, but I, I think there's a limit to how much you can fit into one paper. Secondly, opposition to moral and social change post-1970, and it's not just contraception, it gets into women <coughs> working outside the home and various other things, a, 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 is a complex issue. And this opposition may reflect traditional values in Ireland, but the opposition takes new forms and has new leaders, and many of the latter are women. And I don't think it's appropriate to decide that the royal brain washed by the clergy. I think there's a bit more truth than that. The third point, and I haven't had time to develop it, is that international networks, both liberal and conservative, are important. A, and again, it's women-led groups and the importance of these diasporic networks. I mean, I'll only mention two. Peggy Norris, an Irish-born doctor in Britain, who was leading figure in SPOC, the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child. She brings SPOC to Ireland, and she works with Coppell Daly on the draft of the Bishop's 1977 pastor, Human Life is Sacred. She supports Father Paul Marx to Ireland on the first visit. Another figure worthy of some attention is Dr. Anna Flynn, again Irish, uh, I think UCD graduate, I think both were UCD graduates, uh, Birmingham University uh, academic, a leading figure in natural family planning, which ultimately moved beyond Billings to a more simple formal method, which I'm not going to talk about. Uh, the other points I think worth noting very briefly are that these are the networks that provide support for the pro-life campaign. There is a ready-made network there on the ground which can be, you know, engaged very, very quickly. And then the final point is that Charles Hobby's bill in 1975 is widely derided. Uh, but I would argue that it was a, a significant reflection of Irish opinion at the time. And in fact, Hobby did go to considerable lengths to, to really elicit public opinion at the time, and the, the legislation did reflect that. So that's all I want to say. Whatever you say, say nothing is, 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 is. 